Welcome to our Tuesday's broadcast of the Gospel Truth. Today I'm continuing our series entitled Lessons from Elijah. This is the um, fifth and final part of this series, and this uh, teaching is entitled Elijah's Translation. Uh, we're basically in 1 Kings chapter 19, and I really believe that this product could make a huge difference in your life. God has used these truths to change my life, and I think it would do the same for you. So we've already talked about all of the positive things that Elijah did and how he uh, called for a drought and was supernaturally sustained and multiplied a widow's food and raised her son from the dead and called for the end of the drought, had a challenge to the prophets of Baal and called fire down out of heaven, killed all of the prophets of Baal, ended the drought. All of those things were positive. But then Elijah got drunken with his own success, got away from being dependent upon God, and a woman with a note scared him off, whereas he had been strong standing in the face of the king and defying his armies and everything, and he ran in fear, and then he got embarrassed and ashamed and depressed and asked for God to kill him. The Lord took care of him even in that uh, state and spoke to him, told him three things to do in an audible voice, told him to go anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, Jehu to be king over Israel, and Elisha to be his replacement. And Elijah went and anointed his replacement, Elisha, immediately and never did the other two things. God was speaking to him in an audible voice and he just failed to do two out of three things that God commanded him. And we've already dealt with that. I talked about how he was going by his feelings rather than fact. He was saying he was the only one when the truth was he knew that there were still a hundred prophets of God in the nation and the Lord told him there were still 7,000 people that hadn't bowed the knee. He was, he was just going out of his emotions. And you know, all of us at times feel like doing that, but if you do it, it's going to take you places you don't want to go. Emotions aren't the caboose that just follow everything else. The emotions, it's more accurate to describe it as the engine that drives things. And it says over in James chapter 1 that you conceive sin in your emotions. If you don't want the birth of sin in your life, don't let the conception take place. Every time you give in to these negative emotions and have a pity party, you are just allowing Satan to plant a seed on the inside of you that is going to bring something to birth that you don't want. You cannot indulge negative emotions. Elijah was going by his feelings and not by fact, and it cost him dearly. It cost him the rest of his ministry. He never did finish out what God told him to do. His replacement, Elisha, had to anoint Jehu to be king over Israel and Hazael to be king over Syria. Elijah just disobeyed two out of three things that God told him to do. And yet, despite that, Elijah walked with God and was caught up uh, into heaven in a whirlwind and is one of only two people recorded in Scripture that never died and was just translated into heaven. A man who failed God miserably, and not just for a moment, but over a long period of time. Most scholars believe it was at least 13 years from this instance in 1 Kings 19 until he was translated. He just messed up. He didn't fulfill everything, and yet faith is what pleases God. And did you know that Elijah still was able to be caught up into heaven in a whirlwind, even though he had miserably failed God? Boy, is there a lesson in that for us or what? There are some of you that just feel like, how could God ever use you because you've failed so miserably? You know, I'm saying this in love, but you just need to pull your thumb out of your mouth 
and grow up. And you need to do what we've been talking about, Elijah. You feel so miserable about, well, how could you have done this? You need to quit going by what you feel and take the promises and the truths of God's Word and just stand on them and act on it. Mature. Stand up and do what you know to be right, not what you feel like. I tell you, you're the ones that made feelings God in your life. You're the ones that can dethrone feelings and get to where you do what you know is right and stand on what the Word says. And you can recover. Elijah is a great example of that. So we've already covered all of these things. Man, there's so much more I'd love to say about that. Let's turn down here to 1 Kings chapter 19 and let's see, after God told Elijah to do these three things, and the last thing He told him to do was to go anoint Elisha, to be prophet in his stead. That's the only thing that he did. It's the first thing and only thing that he did. And I believe that that speaks to the fact that Elijah was so dissatisfied with himself. He had basically given up. He was looking to exit this prophet ministry. And so he was quick to go anoint a replacement, but he never did do the other things that God told him to do. I want to look at when he called Elisha to follow him. And so in verse 19, this is 1 Kings 19, 19, it says, So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Sapat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. You know, there's very little information here given on background, and so I don't want to read more into this, but I think that you can see from the fact that he was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen. I don't believe that personally he had twelve pairs of oxen in front of him, 24 oxen, but probably what that means was that he was plowing with servants and things, and there was a total of uh, 12 yoke of oxen operating. You know, that would be similar today to talking about 12 John Deere tractors or combines. You know what? A person who had 12 of any type of equipment or something moving through their fields, that would speak that this is a pretty well-to-do family. And I believe that Elisha, this is speaking to the fact that Elisha was from a well-to-do family. He was probably very prosperous in a, a good position. And Elijah walked by him and cast his mantle upon him. Now that doesn't mean much to us, but it's obvious from the context. And if you could do any studying on this, that what this was to Elijah and to Elisha, this was very clear what was going on. It was a custom of the day. And somehow or another, this communicated that Elijah was calling Elisha into full-time ministry. He was calling Elisha to be his replacement. And it was very clear. Elisha understood this. And so here's his response to it in verse 20. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? Now, there's a number of things. And again, there's so much in these verses that I'm just having to hit some of the highlights. But when Elijah cast his mantle over Elisha, somehow or another he interpreted this and recognized that this was God through Elijah calling him to be a prophet and to be Elijah's assistant or uh, I don't know what you'd call it. uh, His um, Elijah would be the mentor to Elisha. And Elisha understood this and ran after him, but then he asked that he could go back and bid his father and mother goodbye first. You know, this brings back to remembrance when a man came to Jesus and said, Master, I will follow you, but let me first go bury my father and my mother. 
And he says, you let the dead bury the dead and you just come and follow me. And then he went on and gave a parable and he says, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, some people read things like this and think that this is really insensitive and that, you know, this is demanding more of a person than uh, what anybody should, should give. But I personally believe that this is the type of commitment that it takes to really follow God. If you put qualifications on it and say, God, I'm going to follow you as long as my family understands this and as long as they approve and as long as it doesn't cost me this or cost me that, as long as you have any qualifications on your commitment to God, then you know what? It's not a full commitment. And the people that really succeed and fulfill the call of God on their life are people that have burned all of their bridges behind them. I mean, there is no ifs, ands, or buts. It's not, I'm going to do this if everything works out right and if my family understands. And as long as it works to my advantage, God, I'll follow you. No, you have to be willing to make a commitment. Like Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 10, He says, unless you hate your father and mother and brother and sister, yea, in your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. Now again, that looks really... Terrible, but if you look at it in one of the other Gospels, I think it's in Mark where it says this same thing. It says, it's in, in a comparative sense. It makes it very clear that he's not telling you to physically hate your parents, but in relation to your commitment to God, that your commitment to anyone or anything else in comparison to your commitment to God ought to be that like it's hatred compared to the devotion that you give to God. The Lord isn't telling us here that He wants us to hate people. He's just saying that in comparison, you need to be so committed to God that nothing else matters. You know, if I had more time, I could go into a lengthy deal. But I just talked to a couple this last week who God had told them to do something. And it was about moving and going into ministry. And yet, their parents were so dominant in their life. They were coming from a Mennonite background to where, I mean, you know, family is everything. And they were so fearful about telling their parents that they hadn't acted on what God told them. And I said, you know what? You aren't ever going to succeed unless you get to a place that you cut this umbilical cord and you get to a place to where if God tells you to do something, you'll do it irregardless of what parents say, irregardless of anybody else. That's the point that's being made. And so Elijah here was kind of wavering a little bit about, I'm committed, I want to follow you, but let me do this first. And look at Elijah's response here. Here's what Elijah said to him. He says, go back again, for what have I done to thee? There's two ways that you can interpret that. One of these ways is that Elijah could be saying, hey, it's between you and God. You know what? You aren't really following me. You do what you feel God wants you to do. I think that that's one way that you could take that. Or you could look at it as Elijah. And if you look at it in context, Elijah was basically so depressed and so discouraged. He was looking to get out of the ministry. He felt like he had been disqualified. He disqualified himself. The Lord told him to do three things. He ignored the first two, and the only thing he did was anoint his replacement. I think that Elijah could have possibly been just saying, you know what, I don't care what you do. I'm just obeying God. This is between you and God, and you know what, I don't... I mean, I think that Elijah was at the stage to where he honestly didn't care one way or the other's way that I interpret this. But basically, 
Instead of Elijah making this decision and saying, no, you have to follow God right now. You have to be committed. Any man putting his hand to the plow and looking back isn't fit for the kingdom. Instead of one of those responses, it was just basically, you know, do whatever. It's between you and God. God's the one that's really calling you. You know, and there's so much I want to say, but this, this is a great truth. Those of you that feel called to ministry, you know what? You are going to have relationships with people. And I believe that if you go about the ministry the proper way, there should be some type of mentorship in the, relation, in the ministry. You should be learning from someone. And so, yes, there is a truth, and to a degree, you submit to other people and you uh, learn from them, and all of these things are true. But, you know, when push comes to shove, the bottom line is it's really between you and God. You can learn through another person. Another person can be a part of this process. But you can't be a disciple of a man. You've got to be a disciple personally of the Lord Jesus. You can't get to God through another person. Nobody else is a mediator between us and God except the Lord Jesus. And you have to have this personal relationship. And I think that regardless of whether Elijah was doing this out of frustration, just wanting to get out of the ministry, or if he was saying, you know, this is between you and God. You do what you feel God tells you to do. Either way, the end result of it was that it put the ball back in Elisha's court. Elisha now had to make a decision. Was he going to follow this call that had been placed on his life, or was he going to go back and, and bid goodbye to his parents and do all of these things? Here's what he finally decided on doing. In verse 20, uh, well, in verse 20 it says, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave them unto the people, and they did eat. And he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Now this doesn't mention, I mean there's a lot that's not said here, but there is no mention that he ever went back to his parents and bid them goodbye. That was originally what he said he wanted to do. But it doesn't mention that he did that. What he did was go back and take the oxen that he had been plowing with and he used the wooden yokes that he had over them and made a fire out of it, killed the oxen, cooked them and fed all of these other people, these other people that were plowing with these other 11 yoke of oxen, and he fed them and then he took off after Elijah. You know, it's my own personal opinion and it's not spelled out here, but if you study the life of Elisha and look at him, Elisha is one of the most consistent examples of a godly man that we have in Scripture. He never was rebuked. There is no major flaw in him the way that there was in Elijah. And so just to be consistent with the rest of his life, I don't believe that he went back and did what he asked to do, but I believe he got the message. He recognized that, you know what, God has called me and I've got to forsake everything else. And I think that what he did, he took the yoke of oxen, which was like his tool of the trade. In our modern day terms, this would be like a person who's using a combine or a tractor and this is their means of livelihood. It's how they make a living. It's how they work their land and do things. And it's just like going back and blowing that thing up. You know what you're doing? You're burning your bridges behind you. You're saying, there's no retreat. There's no plan B. If it doesn't work out with Elijah, I'm sunk. 
He had totally committed himself. He took his oxen that he used and he killed them and fed the people and then he left and forsook everything to follow Elijah and follow after God. Man, that's awesome. And that has direct parallel. Boy, God has spoken through this to me many a time. That, you know, I feel like God's leading me in some direction and I want to do it. I want to follow that, but I have all of these other things that I'd like to do. And how is this going to, you know, if I follow God, is this going to keep me from fulfilling this over here? I know that at one time, this has been a long time ago, but, you know, just like everybody else, I wondered if we'd ever get to own our own house. Because, I mean, I was always moving around and following what God told me to do. And I moved so often that it wasn't prudent to have our own house. And, you know, I wanted our kids to grow up in one place. And there was a lot of things that I wanted just like anybody else. And, um, but you know what? I had to come to a place to where, God, I know what you're telling me to do. And you know what? Regardless of the consequences, regardless of what fallout this is, it's just like there is no plan B or plan C. God, I'm going to follow you. And if it costs me everything I've got, I'm going to follow you. And there's been a number of times I've had to make that kind of a decision. And I'm not preaching that God will just take everything from you because, you know, I followed the Lord. And there was, there was periods of time in my life where it looked like following God was going to cause me to die. <laughs> I remember when I went to Pritchett, Colorado. Some of you, most of you have never been to Pritchett, Colorado. But if you were to ever go there, it may not be the end of the world, but you can see it from there. It's that close. 144 people in the town. And we had a little tiny church with 10 people in it. And I came from Childress, Texas, which I wasn't having, you know, a huge church in Childress, but we were having 60 to 80 people. I mean, for the first time in my life, I saw light at the end of the tunnel and it wasn't a train. It looked like I was going to survive. Things were going good in Childress. And then I got this call to go to Pritchett, Colorado in a building that was... It, you could cram a hundred people in it if you had to, and there was no roof on it in Colorado in the winter. And I got a call to go there. And you know what? When I went there, it looked like that's the end of me, the end of my ministry, and yet I knew that that's what God called me to do. And so I just went there regardless of what the consequences would be. So I believe that when you make a commitment and follow all of these other things, there's going to be times that it looks like you know, you're giving up everything. But, you know, I look back at it and God has given back to me much, much more than I've ever given up. God has blessed me. I've now lived in the same house for 20, well, it'll be 19 years this October. And I tell you, it's a, it's a great place. I love it. God has blessed us and taken care of us. I'm not saying that God is a taker. God's a giver. God's a good God. But He will call you to do things that at first it looks like that this is going to be the death of you. And just like Elisha, you need to commit yourself to the point that you burn your bridges behind you. You don't leave an avenue of retreat. You don't keep something in reserve over here just in case God doesn't come through. You know what? You need to commit yourself 100%. That's one of the lessons that I learned from this. This is one of the lessons that I learned from Elisha. And I believe that Elisha just committed himself and went for it. And again, the scripture doesn't spell this out, but I've read a number of commentaries that believe it was 13 years from the time that Elisha made this commitment and started following Elijah. 13 years until Elisha took over this ministry. 
And then Elisha, again, this is not spelled out in Scripture, but most people believe that Elisha was in his 90s when he died. He was an old man and he had ruled with the Lord and been a prophet and had seen all of these wonderful things happen. And uh, I mean, it was a long ministry. And, uh, but there was a 13-year period of time where he was not the kingpin. He was not the one who was in charge. He was actually serving a man who was still disobedient to God in a number of ways. And you know what? He was just faithful. Faithful, faithful, faithful. And it paid off big time. And see, these are lessons that you can learn from Elijah and his successor, Elisha, about how the kingdom of God works and about how God uses people. You know what? God raised up Elisha to replace Elijah, but there was a preparation period of time. Many of you are in that preparation period of time, and you may be complaining because it's not the fulfillment. It's not what you really want to do, and you're chomping at the bits to go ahead and fulfill all of these things. But you've got to be patient. You know, one of the things about Elijah that I think was a problem in his life was that as I taught when we first started on this, 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah just boom came on the scene. There isn't a lot of information given, but he just got a word from God and it promoted him. It catapulted him into a position of leadership and he literally started giving orders to the king and the king started obeying him. One of the drawbacks to that is that Elijah did not have this preparation period of time where he grew and sat under the ministry of another great man of God and learned some things. Sometimes you can learn as much by negative example as you can by positive example. And because of that, I think that that's one reason that maybe he shot to the forefront so quickly, but then he also decreased just about as quickly. Now, he was still used of God to some degree, but basically he turned the ministry over to Elisha, and um, he only had two things recorded in Scripture after the failures of 1 Kings chapter 19. One of those was the instance where he prophesied to Ahab about what he had done to Naboth. Ahab killed a man named Naboth so that he could take possession of his vineyard. And Elijah showed up and prophesied that because Ahab had done this thing, that the dogs would lick uh, Ahab's blood in the very place that they had licked the blood of Naboth. And that came to pass exactly the way Elijah prophesied it, and he prophesied that because Jezebel, the queen, was the one that was really behind this whole murder of Naboth, that the dogs would eat her, and that came to pass. All that was left was her skull, the palms of her hands, and the bottom of her feet, and that came to pass exactly the way he prophesied. And so that was one instance where God used Elijah after his downfall. Here is the next instance... And this is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 1. In verse 1 it says, And Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice. Ahaziah was Ahab's son. And so he took over the kingdom after his father died. And he fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick and sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. But the angel of the Lord said unto uh, Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a god in Israel that ye go to inquire Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die 
and Elijah departed. And so this is only the second time, the only, uh, only other instance that Elijah was really used by God after his major breakdown in 1 Kings chapter 19. And when Ahaziah the king saw that the messengers had turned back unto him, he said unto them, Why are ye now turned back? In other words, he knew that they didn't have time to make it to Ekron yet. They came back too soon. So he asked what happened. And in verse 6, they said unto him, There came a man up to meet us and said unto us, Go turn again unto the king that sent you and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that thou sendest to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron? Therefore thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And he said unto them, this is talking about the king, Ahaziah said unto them, What manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? And they answered him, He was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. You know, there, this is quite a statement right here. This man, this prophet appeared... He didn't identify himself by name. And you got to remember, at this time, this was nearly 13 years after Elijah had called fire down out of heaven. He had been basically out of circulation. And so he probably wasn't well recognized or something. These uh, servants didn't know the name of the person. But when the king asked who he was, they said, well, he was a hairy man. And he was wearing a leather girdle around his middle. And immediately... Uh, Ahaziah the king knew who it was. He says, it's Elijah the Tishbite. You know, this says something. This says that Elijah must have been quite the uh, dresser, amen. His garb, the way that he presented himself, just identified himself. You know, again, I've read some secular, or not secular, but I've read some, um, what am I trying to think of, commentaries about this. And I don't know where they get this from, but some extra biblical um, sources uh, say that this is referring to the fact that Elijah had a beard that was nearly down to the ground. You know, I don't know what that means, but apparently he was a hairy man. That must mean that somehow or another he was unusual, even for that day and age where everybody seemed to have a beard, and the way that he dressed himself was unusual. And uh, immediately when they described him, Ahaziah said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. And you've got to remember just like I was describing, Elijah is the one who prophesied the death of Ahaziah's father, Ahab. And it came to pass just exactly the way that it was prophesied. And Elijah is also the one that prophesied the death of Jezebel. Now that hadn't taken place at this time. Jezebel was still alive. But it was in the works. And Ahaziah, this is the reason that he didn't send to Elijah in the first place. Because Elijah had been at odds with the family of Ahab and I imagine that Ahaziah, Ahab's son, just, you know, expected that if he sent to Elijah to inquire whether he would be healed from this problem or not, he expected a bad prophecy. And that's the reason he went someplace else, hoping that he'd get some good news. And so anyway, when Elijah sent these messengers back, they described Elijah and immediately he knew who it was. And look at the response of Ahaziah. In verse 9, it says, Then the king sent unto him, unto Elijah, a captain of fifty with his fifty. And he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of a hill, and he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king has said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven 
and consumed thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. This is absolutely amazing. This is the only time that this ever happened in Scripture. Now, Elijah had called fire down on Mount Carmel before, but it was upon a sacrifice. It wasn't to destroy people. I mean, here was King Ahaziah sending his troops after Elijah, and they said, Oh, thou man of God, the king has said, Come down quickly. And he says, If I'm truly a man of God, let fire fall from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And boom, instantly, something like a lightning bolt struck these people and 51 people were killed. Man, that is a powerful, powerful demonstration of the power of God flowing through Elijah. That's amazing. And again, add to this what we've already taught in the past, that Elijah was told to do three things by God in an audible voice, and he failed to do two out of three things. Elijah wasn't perfect. Elijah hadn't followed God completely And yet God was still using Elijah in a way that if anybody came out and threatened him, he'd just call fire down out of heaven and killed him. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. It shows you the grace of God towards a man who was imperfect, that God was still answering his prayers, still defending him against the ungodly. It shows you the wrath and the punishment of God against anyone who wants to come against the anointed person of God. Boy, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn out of this. And so in verse 11 it says, Again, also he sent unto him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto him, unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee in thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Boy, this is powerful. So this is the second group of 51 men that came out against Elijah and fire fell and killed them. It's a total of 102 people that were killed. And just in case anybody think that somehow or another this was coincidental, I don't know how you could, uh, you know, wring that out of these scriptures, but this verse makes it very clear that it was the fire of God, not just a natural phenomena. It wasn't some kind of a demonic occult thing that Elijah tapped into. It was the fire of God that fell from heaven and killed 102 men. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And so it goes on to say in the story that uh, Ahaziah sent again a third captain, uh, a captain of the third 50 with his 50, and and the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came down fire from heaven and burn up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. And anyway, the king asked him, he spoke to the king, explained his prophecy, and nothing happened to him. He was preserved. But that's basically the story. Now, what I want to do, this is one of the great lessons that I have learned from the life of Elijah. And if you can accept this, this could be a key that really unlocks a number of things. To me, this was something that really uh, opened up my understanding when I saw this passage of Scripture. Look over in Luke chapter 9 in the New Testament... And this is Jesus. He was on his way to Jerusalem 
And on his way to Jerusalem, he decided to pass through Samaria. And um, so in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says, And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Now this verse 53, this is a very important piece of information. The reason they didn't receive Jesus into their village was because he was on his way to Jerusalem. Now the reason that all of this happened is that the Samaritans were a group of people and it goes back way into the history of the Jews, but when the uh, northern ten kingdoms of Israel were led into captivity, the uh, Syrians that the king of Syria sent back to basically inhabit the land of Israel, they weren't prospering because they were in rebellion to the God of Israel. And because of it, the beasts of the field were multiplying and they were being murdered. And it was just, they were just cursed because they weren't doing the things of God. So what the king of Syria did was send back some of the priests and some of the Israelites and they taught these pagans how to appease the God of Israel. In other words, they learned some of the mannerisms. They went through some of the motions of offering sacrifices, but there wasn't a true heart conversion. What they did basically was take the religion of the Jews and pervert it, intermix it with the uh, pagan customs that they were in. So there was a uh, religious prostitution is basically what was going on. And these Israelites that came back started intermarrying with the Syrian colonies that were their colonists that were there. And so there was a racial uh, dilution of the uh, Jewish race, which was expressly forbidden in the law. And so when the Jews were released from the Babylonian captivity and came back unto Israel, they were zealous to preserve their Jewish bloodline and to go back and rebuild the temple and institute the proper worship of God. But the Samaritans were people who had prostituted the true worship. They had intermarried and polluted the Jewish uh, bloodline. And because of that, the, the religious, zealous Jews that came back to Jerusalem hated the Samaritans. It was a racial and religious prejudice. And this uh, prejudice and hatred against the Samaritans was returned by the Samaritans towards the Jews. They hated each other. And so these Samaritans were right there in the center of the nation of Israel. And you can see this when you read the New Testament that uh, there was this friction and uh, hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so this is the reason that these Samaritans wouldn't accept Jesus into their village because they saw that he was on his way to worship in Jerusalem. And they hated what they called the hypocrites at Jerusalem. Now add to this the fact that Jesus in John chapter 4 had already ministered to the woman at the well in Samaria and the woman at the well, she went and got the entire town came out and they accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So to add insult to injury... They already knew who Jesus was. They had recognized Him as the true Messiah. And they knew who He was, but because He was going to fellowship with those hypocrites down at Jerusalem, they snubbed Him knowing that He was the Messiah. 
You know, this was a serious offense. And if you compare this to what Elijah did over in 2 Kings chapter 1, this actually was more justified for the disciples of Jesus to be angry at this than it was for Elijah to call fire down out of heaven in 2 Kings chapter 1. And so this is what, this is the background of it. And when it says that they didn't receive him in verse 54, it says, when his disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? Talking about Elijah. In other words, they were trying to follow the example of Elijah. And what they're talking about is exactly 2 Kings chapter 1, those verses that we read. They wanted to call fire down out of heaven and kill all of these Samaritans who rejected and and, uh, persecuted Jesus. And look at Jesus' reaction. In verse 55 it says, But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives but to save them. And they went to another village. Now this is super important. You know what this means? This means that if Jesus would have been in His physical body on this earth during 2 Kings chapter 1 when Elijah called fire down out of heaven, did you know that Jesus would have rebuked Elijah the same way that He rebuked His disciples for wanting to do what Elijah did? What this is saying is, in 2 Kings chapter 1, it wasn't wrong for Elijah to do this because they lived under a different covenant where people's sins were being held against them and God punished people. And you see wrath and judgment and things happening in the Old Testament that you don't see happening under the New Covenant. And I tell you, to me, this is just like one of the major uh, milestones or markers in the Bible that shows a clear difference between the way God did things in the Old Covenant versus the way He did them in the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, Elijah called fire down out of heaven and killed 102 soldiers who were just doing what they were told to do. And there really wasn't any necessity to do this because when the third captain came with his soldiers and implored Elijah for mercy... The Lord told Elijah to go with him. He went. He spoke to the king. Nothing happened to him. It did not affect him any at all. Elijah did not have to call fire down out of heaven. But you know what? These people were cursed because they had already rejected God. They were ultimately headed to judgment and damnation anyway. And this prophet just called the fire of God. And God judged them and there was punishment. And those things were okay in the Old Covenant, but in the New Covenant, Jesus' disciples wanted to do the same thing and were more justified in wanting to do it than what Elijah was, and yet Jesus rebuked them. Boy, that graphically illustrates the difference between the covenant that Elijah operated under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that you and I are under. And it's amazing how many people do not understand this, and because of it, I meet a lot of people today who want to be an Old Testament prophet like Elijah and they want to call fire down out of heaven and prophesy judgment and that God's going to destroy part of this nation with an earthquake and it's going to fall into the sea. Or they, and they're just all the time blasting and they, they are taking their cue from Old Testament prophets who did things and true, things like that did happen. But what they're missing is 
that God now placed the wrath, all of His wrath against sin, not only the sins of the believers, but the sins of the unbelievers have been paid for. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice or, or payment for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus has paid for the sins of the whole world. God's wrath has been satisfied. God is not out to destroy and damn and judge people the way that many people are proclaiming. And they say, but Elijah did that and Moses did things like this. Well, true, but they lived under a different covenant. In the covenant that we're under, God is not mad. He's not even in a bad mood. And we ought to be preaching the love of God. It's the gospel that's the power of God to change man's lives. Does this mean that there is no coming judgment? Well, if a person rejects God's offer of salvation, they will go to hell and they will pay in hell, but not for their individual sins. Those have been paid for. They go to hell and pay for the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, there is coming a future judgment, but right now we live in a day of mercy that if you try and do what Elijah did, what Moses did, what many of the Old Testament prophets did, if you try and operate that way today and call the wrath of God down on people, you would be rebuked by Jesus the way that He rebuked His disciples in Luke chapter 9. Now that's an easy thing to say, but it's harder to understand. And I found that there's very few Christians that grab hold of this concept. Most Christians just run the Old Covenant and the New Covenant all together. After all, it's all in one Bible They think that the only difference between what's called the Old Testament and the New Testament is just one blank page in their Bible. But you know what? It's a lot more than that. It's a total different covenant. It's a total different contract, way of God dealing with mankind. And we see a mercy and a grace of God revealed in the New Covenant that the Old Testament people, uh, you know, just some of them by faith saw it far off in the distance, but it was totally foreign to the way that they related to God. And sad to say, there's a lot of New Testament Christians today who are trying to emulate and follow the example of Elijah. They want to call fire down out of heaven. They are prophesying damnation and judgment, repent or else, turn or burn. And there's people following in these footsteps, not understanding that Jesus has forever ended that type of judgment and punishment. And now it's the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. The gospel is a testimony about the good news, the nearly too good to be true news that God isn't giving us what we deserve. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Boy, there is a tremendous lesson to learn right here out of the life of Elijah. And I could just talk about that for a long time because that's been a major uh, revelation to me. And I mean, this is kind of like a marker That is just something that, to me, this helps me to discern the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's a major point. In 2 Kings chapter 2, it begins the story about where Elijah was translated and caught up into heaven. And I tell you, there's some powerful lessons to learn here, not only from Elijah, but also from Elisha, Elijah's replacement. And during this period of time, Elisha hasn't even been mentioned. But we know that he was with Elijah, that he was faithfully serving him. He was learning from the man of God. I'm sure that Elijah and him talked a lot 
about the things that God had done, about seeing people raised from the dead, food being multiplied, this contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. I'm sure that there was a lot of instruction going on, but as far as the scripture, it was just totally quiet up until this time about what was going on with Elisha. And now we come to 2 Kings chapter 2, and it says in verse 1, And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. You know, it's amazing to me the way that the Scripture just states this matter-of-factly. Like, you know, it's time now that Elijah's going to be caught up into heaven. It doesn't even explain that this is only the second time in history that this has ever happened. The only other person who didn't die and was just caught up into the presence of God was Enoch, the seventh person from Adam. And prior to that, every other person that had ever lived on the face of the earth lived and then died. And yet Enoch and Elijah were just caught up into heaven. And it just presents this without any explanation. How did this come to pass? Why is it that this happened? You know, we don't have really very much information on Elijah right here, but over in Hebrews chapter 11, let me turn over there and read this passage. This is talking about the great men and women of the Old Testament and how by faith they did all of these things. And here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. It says, by faith Enoch... This is the other person who was translated and caught up into heaven. It says, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Man, that is one awesome statement. Now, again, Enoch and Elijah are the only two people that were ever caught up into heaven without dying. We don't know, it doesn't say in 2 Kings chapter 2 why Elijah was translated, but you can assume, I think it's a proper thing to assume, that whatever was operating in Enoch's life, something similar must have been operating in Elijah's life because they both got the same results. And it says here what Enoch was doing, it says before his translation he had this testimony. The word testimony means this is what he said, this is... This is his answer. This is what he told people. It was his testimony that he pleased God. Boy, that is an awesome, awesome statement. You know, I actually taught on this. I've got a teaching that goes along with this, a parallel teaching about, um, you know, faith is what pleases God. It goes on to say that in the next verse. It says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And I've got a tape entitled, What Pleases God? And um, in that teaching, I use this example. And because of that teaching, I literally had a woman make me a sweatshirt. And on the front of the sweatshirt, it says, I please God. That's the testimony that Elijah had, or excuse me, Enoch had. He says, this was his testimony that he's pleased God. And this sweatshirt that this woman made me said, I please God. And, you know, because she gave this to me, I wore it a few times. And I got an amazing response from people when I wore that sweatshirt. I had people look at me, and a lot of people wouldn't say anything, but the people who would say something, it was usually critical, like, who do you think you are? What makes you think that you please God? What makes you think that God is more pleased with you than He is me or something? And people took offense at this. And so I know firsthand when you have a sweatshirt or either your own testimony that says that I please God, you know what, that's offensive to people. 
for uh, Enoch to have this testimony going around telling people that he pleased God, I can guarantee you he got the same type of response. People probably criticized him, probably spoke of him as being arrogant. But this scripture right here in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 5 and 6 makes it very clear that the reason Enoch was translated was because of his faith. He went around telling people that he pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So basically, Enoch had a revelation that God would extend mercy towards you just on the basis of faith without your own personal holiness. But it was a matter of the heart. In other words, he understood the gospel, the new covenant. He may not have had the revelation the way it's been revealed in Scripture, but he somehow or another had this concept of relationship with God based on faith instead of performance. And so he was translated. I personally believe that just as Enoch was translated because he had this testimony that he pleased God, I believe it's the same thing with uh, Elijah. He got the same results. It's like, you know, if you get the same uh, fruit in a garden as somebody else got that same fruit, well then I can't understand why, you know, you couldn't have got it if you didn't plant the same seed. The same seed produces the same fruit. If you get the same fruit, you got the same seed. So I believe it's the same thing. If Enoch was translated because he believed God and he recognized relationship with God by faith, not based on performance, well then I believe that somehow Elijah got that same message. That is a powerful truth. I I tell you, we we could make an entire teaching out of that because uh, the old covenant was a covenant of wrath, a covenant of condemnation. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 and 9 talks about that. And it was just restrictive and people were judged in punishment. There was some mercy of God, but there was a lot of wrath. And yet the two men who were translated and caught up into heaven weren't New Testament believers. They were Old Testament believers who got these concepts of, of the new covenant, relationship with God based on faith, and they were way ahead of their time and got translated. So I'm reading some into 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, but I believe it's all there. If that's the way that it worked with Enoch, then I believe that that is the way that it worked with Elijah also. And so it came time for the Lord to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind. And so Elisha and Elijah went together from Gilgal. And in verse 2 it says, And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha, and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yes, I know it. Hold ye your peace. There's some things here that just amaze me. Number one is that Elijah got caught up in the first place. We've discussed that to some degree. Secondly, the fact that Elisha just knew this was going to happen. You know, the first thing that comes to me is, how did he know it was going to happen? Well, I'm sure that the Lord revealed it to him, but it's amazing to me that people would be in tune with God and hear God so clearly. And then here's another thing. These are the sons of the prophets. Elijah and Elisha actually started ministry schools of the prophets. In other words, it was like the first Bible school. They started teaching people how to seek God and how to be a prophet and how to hear from God. 
And it's amazing to me that all of these sons of the prophets, there were three different locations that they went to on this one day. And in every situation, the sons of the prophets or these student prophets would come to Elisha and say, don't you realize that today is the day that Elijah is going to be caught up? How did they know this? It appears that they were all so in tune with God that they just knew things. And you've got to remember again, they were living under a different covenant than what we live under. And the New Testament says that what they had had no glory compared to the things that we have. What we have is so much more glorious that it makes that look like nothing. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about that. It says that these Old Testament saints longed for the day that we lived under and searched earnestly what manner of time and what it was that all of these prophecies were about because the new covenant that you and I live under today is infinitely superior to what these people lived under. And yet, in their lives, we see them hearing from God and knowing things that would put the average Christian today to shame. The average Christian today just kind of goes through their life kind of like a pinball, bouncing from one problem to the next and not hearing the voice of God. And yet Jesus said that my sheep will hear my voice and the voice of a stranger they will not follow out of John chapter 10. And yet with most people it seems to be just the opposite. So one of the things that I get out of the life of Elijah right here is that Elijah, Elisha, all of these student prophets we're hearing the voice of God in a way that really puts us to shame today. And yet, the scripture says that what we have is greater than what they have. So this only leads me to one conclusion. And that is that they may have had less, but because of their commitment, I'm sure it had to do something with their seeking of the Lord. The fact that they weren't distracted by all of the things that distract us, all of the news, the television, the movies the fast-paced life. You know, the Bible says in Psalms 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I tell you, a modern-day life that we're living today is not conducive to really having an intimate relationship with God and clearly hearing the voice of the Lord. Uh, I heard my pastor the other day, I, I heard him talk about how that he went down to Mexico and he was down there and he realized while he was down there and there was no television, there was no cell phone coverage, none of these things, he made this observation that he was addicted to activity and that God just basically put him on withdrawals and he said it was amazing how he began to start hearing the Lord and how things began to start making sense and becoming clearer. I tell you what, there's a lot of people today that are addicted to activity or to busyness and our busy lifestyle just literally chokes out the things of God. That's one of the lessons that I learned right here. These people were hearing from God. They had a revelation and a communion with God that the Scripture says is inferior to what we have, and yet they were experiencing and hearing the voice of God better than most people today hear it. How can that be? The only answer I have is that they were more committed to their system, which was inferior to ours, but they were more committed seeking God more than people today are. And you know what this does? This whole story right here just inspires me. I mean, Elijah getting caught up into heaven is miraculous. Elisha receiving the mantle and going back and releasing twice the manifestation of God's power as Elijah did, that's miraculous. 
But these other little subtle things in this story amaze me too. And it in, I never read this passage of Scripture that it doesn't inspire me to say, you know what, God is speaking. It's not God who's not speaking. It's me who's not listening. And this inspires me. It's one of the lessons I get out of the life of Elijah is that we need to pay attention. We need to listen. We need to do what Psalms 46.10 says and be still and know that He is God. You know, just the last few days, uh, it's been beautiful here in Colorado and I've been out walking on my trail just praying and then sitting on my deck in a swing and just looking and listening and asking God to reveal Himself and to speak to me. And you know what? I don't do that as much as I should. We all get busy. But I've been focused upon this and you know, I haven't gotten any dramatic lightning flash from God, revelation in the last day or two. But you know, as I continue to do that, if I'll just make myself available, I believe that I'm going to start hearing God better and receiving greater instruction from God. I think that our busy lifestyle is not conducive to a real good relationship with God. And so this is one of the lessons that I get from these passages of Scripture. As I've been meditating on this, it's reminded me and I've gone back and gone to implementing this. And you know, every time I do this, every time I take time off and just separate myself and spend time in the Word and focus and praying and studying, seeking God, invariably, every time I do that, God speaks something to me that I mean just gives me direction and motivation and shows me things that He wants to do. And every single time I do it, I wonder about why I don't do this more often because it's so productive. And so what this does, it inspires me that if these people could be in tune with God this way, well, then certainly I need to be in tune with God. In verse 4, it says, And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. So here's the second group of prophets, the sons of the prophets that came. And all of these people knew that God was going to catch Elijah up into heaven that day. It's just amazing. In verse 6 it says, And Elijah said unto him, Terry, I pray thee, here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. Now as you go on and read this, like in verse 7 it says, And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. Here's another miracle that Elijah did. Right the very last day of his life, he just took his mantle and instead of fording the Jordan and getting wet, he just took his mantle, wrapped it together, smote the waters, and the waters of Jordan divided. Just like when uh, Moses parted the Red Sea, just like when um, Joshua parted the rivers of Jordan. This is now the third time in history that a man just by the power of God, parted the waters and was able to walk through a river or through a sea on dry ground. Man, major miracle. Boy, this is amazing to me. And again, remember that what these people had is inferior to what we as New Testament believers have. Again, here's some of the things that I learned from Elijah. It just convicts me that we are living way below our privileges 
If a man under a different covenant that the Scripture says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, our covenant is infinitely greater, so much more glorious that it made what these people have seem like nothing in comparison. And yet most people would read these stories today and think, oh, I wish something like that could happen today. You know what we've got is greater. We can see the power in the demonstration of God. It's not that it isn't available. It's just that we aren't believing God the way that Elijah did. This inspires me to believe God. And so they went over on dry ground, and in verse 9 it came to pass, then when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Now here's some things I want to point out. The reason that Elijah three different times told Elisha to stay someplace because he was going somewhere else. You know, I believe that there's, there's a principle here that we've already talked about over in 1 Kings chapter 19 that when Elijah first called Elisha to follow him, Elisha's first response was, I'll follow you, but let me go say goodbye to my parents and kiss them goodbye, and then I'll follow you. And boy, Elijah just said, hey, it's between you and God. What have I done to you? This is God's calling. And Elisha never did go back and say goodbye to his parents. Instead, he burned his bridges behind him. He killed the animals that he used to make a living and offered them and fed the people that were with him. And what Elisha did was just basically burn his bridges behind him and make a total commitment to follow Elijah and and fulfill the call that God had on his life. Now here is a similar type of thing. Elijah is saying, Elisha, wait here, and trying to put him off. And Elisha would have nothing of it. You know, Elisha had made a total commitment to follow God. And he was going to do what God had called him to do. And he was so focused, so intent on this, that Elijah, his mentor, in a sense, his boss was telling him to do something. But he knew what was going to happen that day. And there was no way that Elisha was going to serve Elijah for 13 years and then miss out on the grand finale. There was no way that this was going to happen. Uh, one of the things that I learned through this story is that to receive this double portion of the Spirit of God, to have the mantle of the man of God fall upon you, to receive this kind of an anointing upon your life, one of the things that you've got to be is to be persistent. You can't just seek God in spurts. You can't have something deflect you or deter you, turn you away from the things that are your goal. Here's another way of saying it. You've got to get to a place to where nothing else matters to you. You are so focused on following God that you are seeking first and foremost completely the kingdom of God. And I've just learned by example, here from the example of Elisha, there's many other instances in Scripture where this same thing is taught. There's exact Scriptures that teach this about you have to seek with all of your heart. I've learned from the Word of God that if you want to receive the power of God and see it manifest in your life, you're going to have to give yourself completely, totally to it. Or here's another way of saying it. As long as you can live without a greater manifestation of God's power in your life, you will. But when you reach a place to where you say, I'm not going to live this way any longer. If these people under the old covenant saw things that I've never experienced... And the Bible says that what we have 
is greater than what they had. And you know what? That means that the only difference, it can't be God because we've got a better covenant. God is not changed. It has to be me. And I am not giving up. I'm not quitting. I'm not turning to the right or to the left until I start seeing the supernatural power of God manifest in my life. And then you not only commit and start in that direction, but you're going to have to stay that direction. You can't let other things, people, criticisms, cares of this life and other things choke this decision that you've made. You've got to be committed. And that's what I see here in the life of Elisha. Elijah was telling him, stay here, but man, nothing was going to turn him away. He was committed. He knew what was coming and he wasn't about to miss out. And so finally, Elijah knew what Elisha was doing. He recognized that he must understand what was about to happen. And so he turned to him and he says, what do you want from me before I uh, leave you today? And he said, I want a double portion of your spirit. And notice Elijah's response. He says, you have asked a hard thing in verse, this is in verse um, 10. He said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. You know, sometimes when people are asking for things, they don't realize what they're asking. I've had people come up and say, Would you please pray with me that the same anointing that's on your life would come upon my life? And you know what? There's wonderful things that God has done in this teaching ministry and how He's used me. But you know what? There's a lot of... Uh, it, it, it costs you something. It costs you something. You, don't, you can't be a teacher of the Word if you aren't ever in the Word. You know what? I don't know very much about sports. I don't know, if we play these trivial pursuit games, I'm just useless. You know what? There's a lot of things I've missed out on. And it's going to cost you something if you want these results. And lots of times when people come and ask me, would you please pray that God would anoint me and give me the revelation and do things that He's done in your life, people don't realize what they're asking for. That's basically what Elijah said to Elisha right here. But Elisha was insistent. Here's another lesson to learn from this. And I really haven't got time to amplify this because I've still got some more things to cover here. But this is an important truth that you will often hear people say that this is double portion night. And just like Elisha got a double portion of the Spirit and the anointing of God that was on Elijah, today we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to give you a double portion of the Spirit. And you will hear people do that. I've been to services where they've had double portion night and they do things like this. I've heard it prophesied that you're going to get a double portion. God's going to do greater things. Did you know in the New Covenant, that's incorrect. This is another major difference between the covenant that Elijah and Elisha lived under and the covenant that we live under. Because in the New Testament, it says, And of His fullness have all we received, and grace upon grace. John chapter 1, verse 16. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him bodily, and we are complete in Him. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, As Jesus is, so are we in this world. What all of those scriptures are saying, in the new covenant, we have the fullness of God. And you can't get twice the fullness of God. These people in the old covenant only had a measure, a token of God's power. And so it would be possible to get twice as much power as what Elijah had because Elijah wasn't operating in the fullness of God's power. But in the New Covenant, every born-again believer 
has the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him bodily and you can't get twice the anointing, twice the power, twice the anything. Now, it's possible that you could operate in twice the power that you've operated in, but the truth is it's already on the inside of you. You know, if you've heard my teaching on you've already got it, I've got a book out on that and a CD and tape set. This is one of the major points that I'm trying to get across. People are praying for more faith. You've already got it. You've got the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's infinitely more faith than what Elijah had. You can't get more anointing. You've already been anointed. You can't get more healed. By His stripes you were healed. Everything that people are seeking for, the truth is we've already got it. These people could get more. They could get double, triple, quadruple anointing because these people were only operating in a, sec, in a, in a portion of what God had available. But in the New Testament, every born-again believer has the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in them bodily. The sad thing is we've got all of this tremendous resource and power and we aren't using it. If we had this attitude of Elisha to where we aren't quitting until we see the demonstration, until we get what is rightfully ours functioning, instead of asking God to pour out His Spirit, if we would start believing that God has poured out His Spirit and get this determination that God, I know it's in here and I'm not quitting until I figure out how to release and to get this power out. If we had the commitment and the determination of Elisha, I guarantee you we'd be seeing some awesome, awesome things happen. What we have is greater than what they had. You can't get a double portion of anything. You've already got it all in Christ Jesus. Now, you could operate in more, but you can't get any more. Man, to me, there's a big difference between trying to release what you've already got and then going to God as if you have nothing and asking Him for something. That's starting from a position of unbelief. You need to start believing that you have the fullness of God living on the inside of you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 says, You have the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead living on the inside of you. There, you don't need any more power than that. You don't need any more faith. You don't need any more healing, deliverance, joy, peace. You've already got these things. What you need to do is draw out what you already have. Boy, those are powerful truths. And every time I read this story of Elisha asking Elijah for a double portion. I'm reminded of that because we live under an infinitely superior covenant. And so it says in verse um, 11, it says, It came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. Remember this mantle was a symbol of who Elijah was, his authority, his office. When in the 19th chapter of 1 Kings, Elijah threw this mantle over Elisha and that was a call to that office. And so when he picked up his mantle, that was like picking up his office, picking up his position. And so it says in verse 13, He took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took of the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. 
And so just like Elijah had done when they crossed the Jordan, he took his mantle, wrapped it together, hit the waters, and they parted, and he walked across on dry ground. After Elijah was caught up into heaven, Elisha took this mantle of Elijah that fell from him, went back to the Jordan, wrapped it together, hit the waters, and they parted, and he started where Elijah left off. And this is interesting. He said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And you know, it was appropriate for him to pray that because like I was saying, they didn't have the indwelling presence of God. They had to call for God's power to fall and for God to move and things like this. They were Old Testament saints. They weren't regenerated. They weren't born again. They didn't have the Spirit of God residing on the inside of them permanently the way that New Testament believers did. And so in that sense, it was appropriate for Elisha to call out and say, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And God showed up and parted the waters and he walked across on dry ground. But did you know in the New Covenant... The question isn't, where is the Lord God of Elijah? The question is, where are the Elijahs of God? Where are the people that will stand and believe God? Where are the people who will take the Word of God and recognize the new covenant that we've got and that God has already done this, that God has placed on the inside of us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead? And is there anybody that will stand up and begin to start taking this faith and step out and do what God commanded us to do? He didn't tell us to pray for the sick. He told us to heal the sick. He told us to raise the dead, to cast out devils. The Lord gave us command. He said, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do, because I go unto my Father, John 14, 12. We have more than enough promises and instruction from the Word of God to be able to be men and women of God and to see the power of God in manifestation. But you know, it's not a question today of, Oh God, pour out your Spirit. Oh God, move. But the question is, God has already poured out His Spirit. He's made every one of us more than a conqueror. Every one of us should be seeing supernatural miracles happen. The problem isn't about beseeching God. The problem is, who's going to stand up and be a man or a woman like Elijah and like Elisha. You know, this whole teaching about Elijah, it just inspires me every time I go through it that we are living way below our privileges, that there is so much more than what any of us are experiencing, myself included. And you know, it inspires me. It inspires me, motivates me to commit myself to seek God and receive the full benefit of my inheritance. And I pray that that's one of the lessons that you get from Elijah. Elijah, it says over in James chapter 5, was a man subject to like passions as we are. That's specifically talking about his downfall, how he got depressed. So depressed that he was willing to uh, ask God to kill him. And yet, despite all of these failures and despite all of the things that Elijah failed in, he was a man who had this testimony that he pleased God, just like Enoch. Elijah was a man who had faith and because of it he did great miracles and actually was caught up into heaven. You know what? There is potential on the inside of you if you were born again that most of us have never tapped into. We need to change our goals. We need to set our sights on doing what God called us to do and that's one of the great lessons 
that I get from this life of Elijah. I pray that this series has been a blessing to you. And I tell you, I've enjoyed this. These are truths that God has used in my life big time. I mean, this has made a big impact on my life. And if you'll receive the truths, that this will impact your life too. This is how God has really uh, made me the person that I am is through going to Scripture, studying people's lives, learning through them the truths that God wants to teach me. And I really believe that this is a better method than learning everything through the school of hard knocks.